Good morning, everybody. Um, really good to um, be able to open this passage up for us this morning. Um, if I've not met you, my name's Dan Steele. I'm the pastor here at Magdalen Road Church. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a think about those verses together. Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, these verses will be very familiar, and yet we recognise how important they are. Please would you give us clarity this morning as we think about um, what this passage is about. Please might we understand, perhaps afresh or even for the first time, why Jesus needed to die for people like us. Be at work in us. Soften our hard hearts. And please speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, now, obviously, the, the cross of Jesus is, is looming increasingly large in Mark's gospel. Increasingly, it is front and centre. And as is always the case in the Bible, when the narrative slows right down, so we are meant to slow right down as well. We are meant to take notice. This is the way the author says to us, consider this carefully and about... About a fifth of Mark's account is the last four days or so of the life of Jesus. And so we are meant to slow down and we are meant to take notice. It's an extraordinary story. I'm just going to jump straight in. There's so much we could say this morning, um, but it's a section that shows us a number of things. I just want to focus in on three for us. The three things are the, the breadth of humanity at the cross, the depths of humanity at the cross, and then over against those two things, the third one is the plan of God. So the breadth of humanity, the depth of humanity and the plan of God. You see, Mark essentially shows us all of humanity united against Jesus. He does it very carefully and he shows us the depth to which we will go. And yet in through and despite all that mess, he shows us that God is still in charge. God is still at work. This is not the plan gone wrong. This is how it was meant to be. So firstly then, the breadth of humanity at the cross. And you get a glimpse of that even in verse one. Maybe you spotted it as Miller read it for us. Groups of different people implicated, even from the beginning of the chapter. If you have a Bible in front of you, that'd be great. Um, have a look down at verse one. And read it there very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, teachers of the law and the soul and the whole San, Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus. They led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. I was struck in preparing for this that you get a very weird, topsy-turvy diversity, yet unity at the cross. Uh, diversity and unity is an idea that, that our society loves. Diverse people and yet united by a single cause. You, Think of the marketing brochure of the, or the website of the secondary school where our three eldest kids go. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of skin colours, all kinds of hair colour, all kinds of subject preference. And yet in the same school uniform and still supposedly they are having fun learning and looking happy. Diverse and yet united, you see. 
And it's an idea that the Bible loves as well. It paints a picture of what a church ought to look like. It's something we've been thinking about at Magdalen Road. Local churches representing the diversity of their area, showing the world that Jesus came for, for all kinds of people with, with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of baggage. And yet here in Mark, it's horrible. There's the diversity in the, the breadth of humanity implicated and, and yet unity in that they're in the same page. They want to kill Jesus. Mark is lining up the mugshots, the identikit parade of who was to blame, who was involved, who was implicated. And yet they just keep coming. In fact, it's, I was thinking about this, it's, you know, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, um, Hercule Poirot, if you've not read it or seen it, then I apologise. I'm about to give you a, a spoiler. Um, I'm about to ruin it for you. But um, it's the story of a murdered American businessman stuck on a train in a blizzard. And what Poirot works out by the end is they all did it. They all colluded together against him. They were all implicated, all guilty. And yet actually, in a way, they get away with it. So who have we got in, in Mark's account? Who have we got under the spotlight? Who is a part of our identikit parade? Well, firstly, there's the, the kind of religious bunch. We've said that already in verse one, and it's again there in verse 10. There are chief priests. They are the particular rabble rousers. They stir the people up and get what they want. And it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that they, tick off, they kick off the proceedings for it was they whom Jesus first mentioned when he began to predict his death. Do you remember right back in chapter eight, in fact, at the, the first half of us going through Mark, um, probably 18 months ago now, right back at chapter eight, that, that the section finishes with Peter recognising who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And immediately then, Jesus begins to tell them what will happen to him. And he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Uh, you see, those who ought to have been most looking forward to Jesus, those who knew the scriptures, those who claim to represent, represent God, are at the front of the queue when it comes to those baying for the blood of Jesus. So you've got the so-called religious crowd and you've got the political elite as well. And specifically, you've got Pilate. He, he doesn't come out well in this chapter. Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea. And Pilate is a people pleaser. From what we see, actually, he, he lacks any real principles except trying to keep the crowd happy. That seems to be what motivates him. In fact, what's surprising, I hadn't noticed this before until preparing for this talk, is that Pilate only asks questions. Do you notice that? He, he speaks five times in total, and each time he asks a question. The first two are questions to Jesus, and the next three are questions to the crowd. So to Jesus, he says in verse two and verse four, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, aren't you going to answer? And then to the crowd in verse um, 9 and verse 12 and verse 14, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then he says, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And then he asks, what crime has he committed as the crowd want his blood? 
he asks questions, but there's no real backbone. He simply goes with the path of least resistance. He seems to be convinced that Jesus was innocent. He knew this was no revolutionary plotting against the state as they were claiming that he was. It, obvious to any man that this, this guy has never used a sword in his life. There's no real threat there, but he wants to please people. He wants to please the crowd. He wants to please the elite. And so he is a puppet to the chief priests as they pull the strings. And they do pull the strings, but he is still culpable. So you've got the religious, you've got the political. Now you've got military men. The soldiers, and we might say that they're just doing their job, but it seems like they're enjoying it far too much. They go above and beyond what they're called to do. They mock him with a crown of thorns. They bow down before him. They mock him with words. They assault him. And then you have the crowds as well. They are the other big group in this chapter. Presumably some of the same people who had cheered him in on Palm Sunday are now asking for him to be killed. And as the crowd are involved, so we are implicated. Everybody is implicated. And they shout at him on the cross, so you who can destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross. Come and save yourself. Mark labours the point for us from the top to the very bottom, from the religious elite to the, the circular blue collar, whether Jew or Gentile and everyone in between. We've all conspired against God's King. The breadth of humanity at the cross. It's particularly clear, and we'll come back to him in a moment as well, with the interaction over a guy called Parabus. We're going to focus in there because this is an interchange and he is a character that I think we need to get to grips with. We need to understand the part that Barabbas plays, and you'll see why in a moment. Have a look down at verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. There's an American author who said, if everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking. Maybe that's right. Maybe, you see, the chief priests know how to play the crowd. They know how to manipulate and raise the, the rabble and the mob to get what they want. Nobody's thinking. And so verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The breadth of humanity at the cross. And so we sing, and we'll sing after this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You see, until we realise that we contributed to Jesus's journey to the cross, we will never really understand it. 
we will never really see our our need of it until we see the part that we played it just won't make sense to us so first one then the breadth of humanity secondly though you see the depths of humanity at the cross as well that is at the cross we see people at their very worst as one person said the cross is proof positive that faced with his maker mankind will seek to kill him and ever since genesis 3 faced with god we have a a natural aversion to him we want to get rid of him we, we feel threatened we think he's here to make life hard for us we believe the lies and it was there last week, but it's here again this week. Even in the very first five words of the chapter, we see the depths of humanity. The first five words are very early in the morning. Very early in the morning. Why does that matter? It matters because they are bending the rules. They are blinded by prejudice. Process and legality have gone out the window. This mock trial should never have been allowed to take place. And so for at least four counts, this should not have happened. It needed to happen in the day. This was night time. It couldn't be on the day before the Sabbath. This was. There must be hard evidence. And yet here, simply rumour and gossip and arguments don't match up. And it needed to be public. And, and this was private. This trial should never have been allowed to stand. It shouldn't have happened. And they abuse him verbally and physically and emotionally. He's, he's willing to be victimised by the world he created. And as you read the chapter, who is the one person who ought not to have died in this chapter? Who is the one person who is shown to be innocent? It's very stark, isn't it? Mark makes it really clear for us. Jesus is innocent. Justice has gone out the window. The crowd is baying for blood. Pilate looking for likes. And so Jesus ends up crucified. And the guilty murderer Barabbas goes free and gets off the hook and avoids punishment. And the innocent Jesus takes his place. Barabbas, who has been found guilty, Jesus, who has not been found guilty. And I think Mark wants us to feel both a sense of anger at the injustice. And injustice does make us angry. But I wonder as well whether we're meant to feel a thankfulness as Jesus, the innocent, dies in the place of the guilty. Why? Well, because that reflects something of us. And our situation and our status. You see, despite the breadth and the depths of humanity being revealed in these verses, we also very clearly see the plan of God at work. It, it seems so messy and murky and dark and horrible, and it's an unpleasant chapter. But you know, God is still at work. Perhaps God is especially at work 
in that kind of a context. So it's a challenge for us, isn't it? To keep trusting that pattern, that reality, that truth over these last 12 months in all and all that's been going on, through all that's been going on. He has been so powerfully at work in you and in me and in us. Maybe he's shown us all kinds of things about ourselves. Maybe he's shown us all kinds of little gods, little idols that we worship and bow down to. And those things have been taken away from us. And, and it's revealed something more of us and more of our need of the gospel, more of our need of Jesus dying in our place. It's so clear in our verses this morning. One um, 19th century writer asks, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but ultimately the Father for love. You see, while the breadth and the depth of humanity are definitely there, and there is culpability, in, through and despite it all, our God is still at work, especially at work. And so in all kinds of ways, we're meant to be thankful as we read these verses. I want to give you two words to hang some things to be thankful for off um, from these verses. Two big ideas, and we'll have more opportunity um, to discuss them in home groups. But I want you to focus in on these two things, and then we'll see how they work out in different ways and why we see God's plan at work through them. And the first word is silence. Silence. That is, Jesus does not respond to Pilate's questions. Why is that? Well, it's in large part because he is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from centuries before. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so our Jesus is a silent, suffering servant king, refusing to speak, refusing to respond. He is to be our sacrificial lamb. He is the king who will die for his people. He is the shepherd who will die for his sheep. That's the first aspect of silence. But secondly, also, listen to this, his refusal to defend himself actually has another result. It, it protects his own enemies. We can accuse Pilate of many things, and we've already seen much of them. We, we, we can see he's a people pleaser. We can see he's a bit of a coward. But I don't think he's foolish. You see, he knows the Sanhedrin's charges are false, and he knows that if Jesus affirms this, his accusers could actually be convicted of false witness. And do you know what the punishment was for false witness? The punishment for false witness is to face the same punishment that the defendant would have received themselves. That is, had Pilate been up for pursuing it, he could have crucified the religious leaders. That was the law of the time. And so do you see the point? In his silence, Jesus even protects his own enemies. It's extraordinary. Incredibly powerful. And so if our first word is silence, the second one is substitution. You see God at work through that silence, but you see him at work in the, the reality of substitution as well. 
For millennia, Christians have said that these verses are vital for us to grapple with because before God, we stand rightly guilty like Barabbas. We stand condemned. We may not have committed murder, at least not physically, but maybe in our hearts. And yet before a God who is so good, we are rightly condemned. Before a God who is incredibly righteous, we stand guilty. Because he knows us. He knows the reality of our hearts. He knows the guilt and the shame. And so we need a substitute. We need someone like Jesus. Perhaps you're new to Christian things and you've never quite twigged this before, but please understand this. We look at Barabbas and... And it's as if we're looking into a mirror. You see, as Jesus takes the rightful place of Barabbas, so he takes our place. He is punished where we ought to be punished. He dies instead of us. Barabbas deserved it. We deserve it. But Jesus didn't. And so you read this account and I am Barabbas. And you are Barabbas. Which leads us to irony of ironies, the final word slung at him from our passage for this morning. As, as Miller read it, this was how it closed out. Do you remember in the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law mocking him among themselves? He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. What they didn't realise was that in, in not saving himself, he was saving others. For it was through his death that he was able to save his people. Or to put it another way, if he had saved himself, and of course, should he have wanted to, he certainly could have saved himself. But then he couldn't have saved his people because we would still be guilty and we would still be in sin. And God would still be angry with his people. And so what kept Jesus there? What kept Jesus hanging on the cross? It was love. Love for guilty, sinful, Barabbas-like people. People like me. People like you. People who, who don't deserve it, but... People who do receive life. Because Jesus is our substitute. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And so I want to say that if, if you're someone who's never quite understood that before, never quite understood why Jesus had to die, never quite understood what it really means for you, or why Christians keep going on about the cross, maybe you're someone who's not quite seen themselves as Barabbas, as someone who needs 
who needs saving, somebody who is guilty. Well, can I say this morning, know that Jesus offers forgiveness to you. He, he died in the place of his people as our substitute so that we might be forgiven, so that you might be forgiven if you'll just accept that gift. He took God's anger, his right anger against your sin upon himself. And so if you've not accepted that gift of forgiveness before, that gift of new life, friends, today would be a great day to do that. The first day of the rest of your life, the first day of a new life. Will you do that? Let me pray now. Father God, we thank you for... Thank you for what we've just read and thought about. Thank you for the love of Jesus for his people. Thank you that in his silence, he was being that sacrificial lamb that you promised. That king who would come and die for his people, that shepherd who would die for his sheep. Thank you that his silence protected his enemies. For we know that naturally we were your enemies. Thank you that he was our substitute. Thank you that we are Barabbas-like people and so we can be given life because of the death of Jesus. I thank you that you indeed did not save yourself so that you could save people like us. Well, we thank you that Jesus was willing to die for people like us. And so as we reflect upon that through the next couple of songs, perhaps even as we prayed that prayer for the first time, would you bring us a fresh realisation of our need of the cross and a joy that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.